1: This is an iHeart original.
2: Hey, you on the piano, cut that out. I need to use the phone. <clears throat> Philadelphia record? Hi, my name is Major General Smedley Darlington Butler. longtime reader, first time whistleblower. I'm calling because... Now this is going to sound nuts, but... There's some big businessmen who are trying to finance a coup on the Roosevelt White House. And I don't think it's right. So after a lot of soul-searching, I'm calling them out. Finally.
3: Sir, you called Pizza Hut?
2: I know, I'm just psyching myself up to make the actual call.
3: Oh, okay. Did you want a pizza?
2: Yeah. Personal pan size. Ham on half.
3: Okay, and what did you want on the other half? Just ham on half! That's weird.
2: I can take my business elsewhere, young man.
3: Okay, okay, I'm on half. Anything else?
2: Can I add a side of democracy and peril?
3: Um, what's that?
2: Just some garlic nuts.
3: Garlic nuts, okay, that'll be ready in 45 minutes.
2: Perfect, episode should be over by then.
3: Thanks for calling Pizza Hut.
2: Thanks for helping me procrastinate.
3: It's what we do, sir.
2: Okay, here we go. Not yet, dipshit! I have to make the actual call first! Filling off your
4: record, how may I direct your call?
2: Operator, get me Paul Comley French. On the hop!
4: One moment, please, sir.
5: This is French. French, you ink-stained
2: wretch! How are you? I'm fine. Who is this, please? Schmedley Butler here. You remember me? We met when I was director of public safety in Philadelphia.
5: Were you the one with the cape? I was indeed. That cape was really cool. Don't I know it.
2: Okay, here we go. Listen up, French. I got a whale of a story
6: for ya.
7: From iHeart Originals and School of Humans, this is Let's Start a Coup. I'm your host, Ben Boland. And I'm the other guy, Alex French.
5: And I'm a historically-based reimagining of 1930s journalist Paul Conley French, no relation to Alex French, who has been kind enough to let me present this part of the program. To bring you this story, Alex and his associates have done all the research, read the books, interviewed historians. But still, there are some big gaps in the record, and they'll never know exactly what happened. I know what happened, because I was there, but as I'm merely a reinterpreted historical personage, I can't tell them. So in those gaps, they've had some fun.
6: This is Episode 5 Ham on Half. In early September of 1934, retired Marine Corps Major General Smedley Butler reached out to Paul Calmley French, a reporter for a couple of liberal leaning newspapers, including the Philadelphia Record and the New York Evening Post. French
7: covered high profile stories like the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby.
2: French, what I'm about to tell you may sound hard to believe. It's a sordid tale of ambition, treason, and what
5: happens when rich assholes have too much damn time on their hands. That's my favorite kind of story, Mr. Butler. Let me hear it.
2: It's kind of hard to take the plunge. Once I tell you, I can't exactly take it back.
5: I understand. Would it be easier if you relayed the story in a series of flashbacks? Maybe with some harp music? I knew you were the right
2: man to call. Hello,
6: Smedley. McGuire pulls a wad of cash from his pocket. He starts tossing thousand dollar bills on the mattress.
2: I counted 18 of those, McGuire. So that's somewhere on the order of lots of money. I don't know from math, but I know you're not the one pulling the strings, so make with the boss man. Who's behind this?
6: All these smoky Room guys, John Davis, Al Smith, Grayson Murphy, Robert Sterling Clark, all these guys were connected to an anti-Roosevelt organization called the American Liberty League.
7: The DuPonts and their lackeys from the league wanted a lot of things. Lower taxes, elimination of federal relief, perhaps a statue
2: of Noir on the National Mall, one that was the Lincoln Memorial.
6: I don't know, just spitballing. They had the motive. They had the muscle. They just
7: needed the Generalissimo. These must be the puppet masters we've been looking for.
5: Wow, that was a really helpful flashback. Are you saying that some shadowy businessmen want to stage a coup on the Roosevelt White House and they asked you to lead it? Yes, and thanks for confirming that exposition. My. Goodness, Mr. Butler, this could be the story of the century. Well, French,
2: the story can be yours. In fact, I want it to be yours, and I'll help you in any way I can. But before you write it for the papers, there's something you need to do first. I need you to go see Jerry Maguire. The movie that comes out in 62 years? No. The Thumb-Faced Patsy.
7: After French agreed, Smedley called Jerry Maguire to set up the meeting.
2: Hi, Jerry. Ah. I'd like you to meet with my associate, uh my
7: And here Smetley decided to use a fake
6: name.
2: Uh, my associate Billy French. <laughs> Good cover. What was that? Jerry, I'll make no further commitment to your shadowy overlords until my pal Billy <laughs> approves the plan. So please describe to him what you have in mind.
6: Soon after, Paul Calmley French, going by the name Billy, drops
7: in on Gerald Jerry Maguire.
5: Hello, I am Billy.
7: The meeting takes place in the lower Manhattan headquarters of Grayson M.P. Murphy Company. Murphy, if you recall, is the American spy turned investment banker, a gangster of capitalism if there ever was one. Maguire works for Murphy as a $100 a week bond salesman it's unclear what exactly transpired in that office. Based on the
6: use of a fake name, we're pretty sure French didn't tell Jerry Maguire that he worked as a journalist. In fact, it seems French was there under some other pretense. Undercover? I mean, maybe, certainly not what we would call above board.
5: Sometimes I pretend to deliver a pizza, maybe I did that. Oh,
6: yeah, yeah, it
5: could have been that. Sometimes fake pizza deliveries take a weird, sexy turn, though. Like this one time I opened the door and- Oh,
7: hey, okay, that's cool. good, whoa, whoa, whoa buddy, right. that's good. Right.
5: Well, that's fine.
6: Look, we know that French didn't take notes during his conversations with McGuire, and that
7: after the meeting, he rushed to a typewriter to get it all down. According to Paul Connolly French's account of the meeting, McGuire proceeded at first with caution.
4: Nice mild weather we're having, isn't it? Is it? I find that I can neither agree nor disagree with that sentiment.
5: Oh, well... I'm just saying, it's 65 and cloudy, so pretty classic
4: mild day. This information regarding what may or may not be termed weather, I can neither confirm nor deny.
6: That's weird, right? The French kept going,
5: though. Say, Maguire, uh, just wondering, any interest in, um, fascism? Study any fascist organizations, ever? I really love fascist style. Those armbands and tight haircuts. So slick, right? I'm gonna need another tactic here. Uh, how about comics, Mr. McGuire? You
4: like Dick Tracy? Yes, in fact, if I may slightly tangent, that guy reminds me of Mussolini. What? I only mean in the heroic regard, you understand. Yes, sir, that Mussolini's a stand-up guy, two-way talking radio watch or not.
6: Jackpot. So yeah, eventually, McGuire really loosened up. He talked.
4: Sounds nuts, but what we're doing is tremendously patriotic. We want to save the nation from communists who want to tear our country apart. And since the former soldiers are our only safeguard, we'll see how the fascists operate. I wrote Smedley a postcard. It's been a while, but it went something like this. How are you, Smedley? I am fine. The brown shirts are lovely this time of year.
6: And talked.
4: One word. Labor camps adoy. I mean, Hitler's doing it. And if Hitler's doing it, it can't be that bad. And Smedley, he's so funny. He's like, how are we going to pay for this? And I'm like, via friends at J.P. Morgan and Citibank, of course. And the DuPonts can help us secure arms and ammo for whatever needs. What right. we're
6: saying is, the guy just went on
5: and on.
4: One more thing. One more thing. You know who I think is sexy? Like, uncomfortably sexy? That one Eminem. But not the one you're thinking of. Oh my
5: goodness.
6: After his September 1934 interview with Jerry Maguire, Paul
7: Conley French actually held off on publishing the story. We don't know for sure, but I have a theory that Smedley wanted the government to investigate, but must have recognized how insane his allegations sounded. So he went to the Secret Service and told them everything he knew. Perhaps Smedley asked French to sit on the story so that when the government came calling for testimony, Smedley would have a reliable, well known journalist ready to corroborate his claims. At
2: any rate, now it won't be just me who sounds crazy.
7: And the
6: government did come calling. Earlier that year, the House of Representatives put together a committee to investigate propaganda efforts against the U.S. government. It was called the Special Committee on Un-American Activities Authorized to Investigate Nazi Propaganda and Certain Other Propaganda Activities. Gesundheit. Thank you. More commonly, it was called the McCormack-Dickstein Committee,
7: after the chair and vice chair. The committee called Smedley in French to testify in a closed-door session, as in, no reporters or members of the public allowed. The meeting convened in the supper room of the New York City Bar Association in Midtown on November 20th, 1934. The committee swore Smedley in.
2: I'm here to tell the truth, goddammit.
7: That's
6: not what they mean by swearing, Smedley. It's
2: what I mean by swearing, sonny. Fine.
6: Then the committee instructed him to recount the alleged plot. Because the proceedings were secret, we only have some heavily sanitized summaries from the meeting. There are some short transcriptions of the proceedings included, like this one.
2: May I preface my remarks by saying, sir, that I have one interest in all of this, and that is to try to do my best to see that a democracy is maintained in this country.
6: Over the next hour or so, Smedley recounted the plot really in much the same way that we have on this show, but without all the goofy voices and stuff.
2: I heard that.
6: It's nothing
7: personal, Herbie. When Smedley finished his testimony, the committee called Paul calmly French. Under oath, French backed up Smedley's story by recounting his meeting with Jerry Maguire.
5: Maguire said a lot. I mean, he went on and on. But notably, regarding Roosevelt, he said they might do with him what Mussolini did with the king of Italy. You know, keep him around the kiss babies and dedicate bridges.
6: Then, later that same day, Jerry Maguire, Hello! escorted by his attorney, Hello! appeared before the committee. Maguire presented the House committee with testimony that could only be described as, well, confounding. His remarks border on nonsensical. The committee members seemed to think so, too. Because during his
7: testimony, Maguire can't be pinned down to anything. And it's not just that he sticks to the old playbook for staying out of trouble. Ooh, admit nothing, deny everything, make counter accusations. Yes, correct. But it's deeper and more confusing than that. Maguire seemed determined to knock down every detail in Smedley and French's story. But then, at the same time, Maguire can't construct anything resembling a cohesive narrative and he can't provide sound explanations for fundamental details. He says at first that he wants Smedley to give speeches on behalf of a new group called the Committee for the Sound Dollar that's bankrolled by Sterling Clark. Remember that guy?
4: I'm the sewing machine guy who talks like this. Oh, yeah, him.
7: (laughs)
6: Yes. But then, a little while later, McGuire says he never wanted Smedley to give speeches to the Committee for the Sound Dollar because Smedley doesn't know anything about money. Maguire does stuff like this over and over, and so what you end up with is no answers at all.
4: Crazy like a fox, boys. Crazy like a fox with an erratic falsetto.
6: Alex, it sounds like Jerry Maguire tried gaslighting Congress.
7: No kidding. One of my favorite moments is when McGuire says he keeps showing up to see Smedley because he thought they were friends. And at one point, he warns his pal, the General, about getting involved with the wrong kinds of people and the wrong kinds of causes. He says Smedley confesses that he's involved with a vigilante group, hell-bent on overthrowing the government. He told the same story to reporters.
4: The thing was, General Butler was always coming around to me with books and letterheads from all these crackpot organizations, and I would keep telling him, General, you're a goddamn fool to fall for all those outfits. You'll be holding the bag. That's
6: a real quote, by the way. Basically, McGuire denied every accusation and turned it back on Smedley.
7: Zing.
5: <laughs>
7: that afternoon, the New York Post released their evening edition. They ran Paul Calmley French's story on the front page. Ben, I actually found a copy. It's stunning. In huge, bold font, the paper declares,
6: General Butler accuses New York brokers of plotting
2: dictatorship in US. Ha take that, fascist assholes. Ha <laughs> ha. So is that it? It's over?
7: Not even close. Oh, bummer. In that same evening edition, and in the spirit of fairness, the Post devoted three columns of copy to angry denials from Jerry Maguire and Grayson Murphy. Sterling Clark, on holiday in Europe, couldn't be reached.
4: But in case you were curious, the answer's yes. I'm having a wonderful time.
6: The Post described Maguire as having bright blue eyes, close-cropped hair, short, quite heavy, with a small, bullet-shaped head.
4: Oh, they noticed my eyes!
6: He told a reporter, quote,
4: I've kept General Butler out of plenty of trouble, and this is what he does to show his gratitude? Everybody told me not to trust him, that he would pull his publicity stunts on his best friends, but I always thought he was a square shooter. I don't know whether I'll ask for a retraction or sue for
7: libel. Dollar Diplomacy OG and McGuire's boss, Colonel Grayson Murphy, told The Post, I haven't had time to do anything about this yet because I haven't been able to stop laughing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you see as soon as the New York Post front page story broke newspapers from all over the country reached out to the accused seeking reactions the next day papers from coast to coast ran the Butler story on page one above the fold
6: it shouldn't be a surprise that every person implicated in the plot denied the charges.
4: A fantasy. Perfect
5: moonshine. Too unutterably ridiculous to comment upon. Butler had better be damn careful with what he says. Nobody
2: said a word to me about anything of the kind, and if they did, I'd throw them out the window. The
4: best laugh story of the year. It's a joke. A publicity stunt. It's made of whole cloth. I deny it
5: completely.
7: On November 24th, the committee's heads issued their preliminary findings. And this was the first sign that something was off with the investigation.
5: I hope it's
3: not my pizza ham.
7: As its first order of business, the report dismissed any suspicion aimed at a handful of very prominent men.
3: This committee has had no evidence before it that would in the slightest degree warrant calling before it such men as John W. Davis, General Hugh Johnson, Thomas W. Lamont.
6: We haven't heard that name before, Thomas W. Lamont, but he was a huge deal in 1935, the man in charge of J.P. Morgan's investment bank.
3: The committee will not take cognizance of names brought into the testimony which constitute mere hearsay.
7: Which is strange, because investigating was the committee's stated purpose. Hearsay could also be considered a tip, a hint, a clue, precisely the kind of information that investigations are based on. I mean, is it really a surprise that slam-dunk evidence against big-name players wasn't presented in the first three days of the hearing? Digging is required, but you know... Nothing to see here. It's like the rich guys got a pass. It was almost like if you were
6: above a certain income level, you're automatically innocent. But
2: these are only the preliminary findings. We still gotta wait for the final report to find out what the committee found and what they're gonna do about it.
7: This preliminary report did expose some troubling irregularities in Jerry Maguire's testimony. Here's one, strap in. Maguire's
6: testimony lasted three days. On the first day, the chairman asked Maguire about his final meeting with Smedley just after he'd come back from Europe. Maguire maintained that, no, he hadn't gone to Europe to research fascism. No, no, no. Sterling Clark, the sewing machine guy, had just sent him there to research economic conditions.
3: Did you tell General Butler now was the time to get the soldiers together? No, sir. Did you tell him that you went abroad and looked into the setups of the governments there and the part that the veterans played in Italy? <laughs> Mr. McGuire? No, sir. Did you tell him that you went to France and there you found the organization that we were looking for? A group called. uh Qua de feu?
4: Qua de who? Oh, them! Right. Well, I told Smedley that there had been an organization formed over there, an organization of veterans, men who were in the frontline line trenches under fire. And I, I said that they are a very fine group, that they are with the government and the people over there. And as far as I could see, I thought France was all right. It was mainly economic, my talk.
6: So that's what he said under oath. But later, Maguire handed over a humble-looking stack of carbon copies to the committee that contained proof that he had lied. They were the letters he sent from Europe. Some were addressed merely gentlemen, others to Mr. Clark specifically.
7: Maguire expressed great admiration for one fascist organization of armband-wearing Frenchmen in particular. You guessed it. Quoi de feu. Stop it, Jerry. Quoi feu is known for having been violent and anti-leftist. Here's how he described these guys in a letter he wrote while in France.
4: These fellows are interested only in the salvation of France, and I feel sure that the country could not be in better hands, because they are not politicians. They are a cross-section of the best people of the country from all walks of life, people who gave their all between 1914 and 1918 that France might be safe. And I feel sure that if a crucial test ever comes to the Republic, that those men will be the bulwark upon which France will be saved.
6: Okay, did you catch that, folks? On the stand, Maguire just said that he was in Europe to study economic conditions, that he was not there to take in all the fascist organizations of the land. But here he is, writing an elegy to the Croix de Feu. For the committee, this was a red flag. Despite the committee's mandate to examine un-American activity, Dickstein and McCormack never asked McGuire a single question about the story Paul calmly French had told in his testimony. They never interviewed the DuPonts, or any official from Remington Arms, or former New York Governor Al Smith, or
4: Robert Sterling Clark. Good, because I'm still on vacation. Oh, these croissants.
2: They didn't talk to Grayson Murphy either. McCormack said it was not necessary to subpoena him because the committee already had hard evidence linking him to the plot. McCormack said he, quote, didn't want to give Colonel Murphy an opportunity to pose as an innocent victim, which is a load of horseshit if I ever heard one. Call his seditious ass to the stand and make him sweat.
7: And as the committee adjourned to put its findings in writing, it seemed like every mention of the plot's most powerful figures was either being downplayed or ignored. What we're saying is it sounds like a cover-up to shield
6: some very powerful people from accountability.
2: This is not going
6: well. After the break, the press has a field day. And the country's reaction, or lack thereof.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
7: Two days after the start of the Congressional hearing, what became known as the business plot was the biggest story in America. The New York Post afternoon edition once again dedicated the front page to an article featuring reactions from big-name government officials. The Secretary of War called for a full investigation, and the Secretary of the Navy expressed confidence that the committee would get to the bottom of things.
6: And the hearings continued. Grayson Murphy spoke to the press, telling a reporter, quote,
3: the whole thing is just as though somebody walked in and accused me of stealing the moon. It looked to me like an absurd joke. Uh, all right. even if McGuire had been foolish enough and stupid enough to fuss around with such a thing, it would be obvious that it would be ineffective.
7: Meanwhile, some very loud voices in the news media also tried squashing the story. Yeah, Smedley may have
6: been a decorated American hero, but in 1934, he was an easy target. He seemed like a bitter kook and dire want of some attention. Remember when Smedley told a crowd that Mussolini ran over and killed a child? He was almost court-martialed for saying that, and he caused public embarrassment for the US government by airing America's dirty imperialist laundry. It wasn't hard to paint Smedley as radical, detached from reality.
7: The New York Times likened him to a famous con man. Time Magazine satirized the allegations with a story called A Plot Without Plotters. Other papers knocked down Smedley's story, characterizing it as far-fetched or impossible to pull off. If you read these articles, though, it becomes very clear very quickly that something is up. The press seemed to have an agenda, to minimize the story or just ignore it altogether.
2: Yeah, the press was running opinion pieces dressed up as facts. You two should be grateful that that's a thing your generation won't have to worry about.
7: (laughs) Well... So why would the mainstream American media want to bury a story about a plot against the President of the United States? The
6: scary thing... The answer to that question is relatively straightforward. The mainstream press was largely run by a handful of powerful men who controlled the media and therefore the national conversation. And an alarming number of them were fans of fascism.
5: What a great time to be alive! We're rich, we're white, nothing can stop us! And nothing ever will! Don't tootin', pass the jazz cigarettes! <laughs> One of
6: the most notable of these individuals will be familiar to you, our listeners.
5: Oh, you always make Uncle Randy sound so ominous.
6: That would be William Randolph Hearst, or Uncle Randy, as our favorite plutocrats apparently like to call him.
4: Uncle Randy's a teddy bear! A teddy bear with extremely sharp claws and a troublingly long memory. Hmm. This Hearst sounds like he'd be a great target, I mean subject, for a movie. That's Orson Welles,
7: everybody.
6: Go back to the green room, Orson. Okay.
7: In our sleuthing, we found a fascinating paper about the episode called The Business Plot in the American Press, written by Bradley Galka. Galka points out that around the time Smedley made his allegations against the shadowy cabal of tycoons, Hearst's media company produced 26 daily newspapers in 17 Sunday-only editions, as well as magazines, radio stations, and movie companies. You name it, Hearst owned a piece of it. One in eight American newspapers were his. Here's Bradley Galka.
9: So Hearst at this time had an audience that was unrivaled. He had tremendous influence over the opinions of ordinary Americans who would receive their news as well as political commentary and things of that nature directly from whatever was printed in a Hearst
7: newspaper. If Hearst ever wanted to bury a story or distort one, and he often did, he was in the perfect position to do so. Funny thing, Hearst
6: started out as a pretty liberal guy. He supported Roosevelt's candidacy, but then took a hard right turn. He considered FDR's New Deal to be communistic, socialistic, and thoroughly un-American. And he used his newspapers to broadcast this perspective.
9: Hearst himself wrote an open letter that he published across the front pages of his newspapers all across America, in which he characterized fascism as only being a response to the greater threat of communism. He argued basically that as long as Americans prevented communism from being a threat to American democracy, they had no reason to worry about fascism in America.
7: Among the publishing elite, Hearst wasn't alone in his opposition to Roosevelt or a sympathy for fascism. Henry Luce, the publisher
6: of big newsstand titles like Fortune and Time, was also a Mussolini man. In 1934, Fortune devoted an entire issue to a puff-piece, soft-focus portrait of life in Mussolini's Italy. Observers called Luce's foreign affairs editor at Time an outright pro-fascist who slanted and
7: perverted the news on a weekly basis. And, surprisingly, the New York Times which had a reputation for remaining above the partisan fray and adhering to the principles of journalistic objectivity, was at best inconsistent in its stance on fascism, modulating between condemnation and glorification. Get to the point, nerds.
6: Ugh. Okay, okay. The point is, when Smedley came forward in November of 1934, all of these sources provided cover for the plotters. Papers run by Hearst devoted minimal column space to the details of the plot, while at the same time discrediting the investigation itself. One column in the Chicago Daily Tribune alleged that the committee's investigation exhibited a comic opera atmosphere, and Riley noted that Dickstein and McCormick like to see their names in the paper. Here's Bradley Galka again.
9: Many of the outlets that were particularly critical of Butler when the story first broke chose not to cover the story again in February when the congressional report came out. As for the tenor of the news coverage, the liberal-leaning or left-leaning in general news sources tended to cover the story much more frequently.
6: So when the final report came out, not many people were paying attention. Which is really unfortunate, because this is where Smedley got his due. The report issued by the committee in February included the following passage.
3: Your committee was able to verify all the pertinent statements made by General Butler with the exception of the direct statement suggesting the creation of the organization.
7: Meaning the creation of a fascist army under Smedley's leadership.
3: This, however, was corroborated in the correspondence of McGuire with his principal, Robert Sterling Clark of New York City, while McGuire was abroad studying the various forms of veterans' organizations of fascist character.
2: Stop the tape! Did you hear what the congressman just said? You need me to repeat it? Isn't signposting the phrase you podcast monsters use for saying things slowly and repeatedly?
6: Yes, that's correct. All right,
2: well, let me signpost, then. And, and do you mind if I get up on this lectern here? Because I really need to share this with as many Americans as I can reach. <clears throat> okay. Hi, America. Listen up. Okay, here goes. The Dixitian Committee substantiated my testimony. They said, quote, There is no question but that these attempts were discussed were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. So with all the evidence and all the testimony, they basically said, yeah, this happened. See? I'm not crazy. But here's the thing, and I I hope you really absorb this part. The big thing that didn't happen is never as big a deal as the big thing that does happen. So. The papers might make me seem like a delusional, over-the-hill, attention-seeking nutbag. All they want. And the history books might bury the story. And yes, the shadowy cabal of billionaires might survive to pillage and rob another day. That's what they do. Retrench and then keep going. Maybe there were no arrests, no trials, no further investigations. But there was also no coup, was there? Just consider for a moment, America, what might have happened if I hadn't spoken up. Might you still be able to vote? Might you still be able to speak freely? I don't know, but I can say with some amount of certainty through my gimlet adult perception that I helped ensure both those things remain possible. I'm no hero and certainly no saint. I learned that in life, but that wasn't the point. The point is, sometimes it's worth giving yourself up. Doing the right thing regardless of how much applause there'll be once it's all said and done. Hey, where'd everybody go?
6: I, uh, I think they went home, man.
2: Oh. Hmm. How much of that do you think they heard?
6: Time will tell. Well, at least it's been said. We should probably clear out of here.
2: Yeah, uh, let me get my
6: jacket. You guys want to get a pizza on the way home? Sure.
7: Ham on half? Sure. Sure. On our next episode, we learn the fate of the rest of the participants in this story. From Clark to McGuire. Hello! To former presidents. Can't
2: wait.
7: And, of course, you too, Smedley. But
2: was that not enough catharsis for you just now? You're telling me there's going to be more poignant emotions coming down the pike?
7: Afraid so, Major General. (sighs)
6: shit. Join us for the next and final episode of Let's Start a Coup.
10: Let's Start a Coup is a production of School of Humans and iHeart podcasts. Our hosts are Alex French and Ben Bolin. The show is written by Alex French with additional writing by Joe Kenosian. original music and scoring by Joe Kenosian. character voices by Joe Kenosian.
3: That guy's a ham on both halves, am I right, ladies?
10: Enelis Perez is our producer, Amelia Brock is our senior producer. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Alexander Overington. Our story editor is Lacey Roberts. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. The Heat Frazier is our recording engineer. Recorded at the iHeart Studio in New York. Executive producers are Jason English, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. If you're enjoying the show, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. We'll also take your comments
4: on M&M's. Like, if
10: I was to leave a comment,
4: I'd say, take off your shell and
10: stay a while. Mr. McGuire, please!
5: Sorry, folks, I'm gonna get him out of here.
10: Tune in again next time for... Let's Start a Coup.
0: School of Humans. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.